to it. Hello and a very warm welcome to our NICE Guideline Update podcast for August 2023. Welcome to everyone listening in from North Norfolk, across the UK and abroad. Our monthly podcast can also be found on the North Norfolk Primary Care website at nnpc.info. I'm Emma Lambon and I'm an Advanced Nurse Practitioner and a Non-Executive Director for North Norfolk Primary Care and I'm here with my podcast partner Emma Smith. Hello, I'm Emma Smith and I'm an Advanced Nurse Practitioner and the Director of Clinical Services and Quality at North Norfolk Primary Care. Uh, this podcast aims to give you an 8-10 to 10 minute overview of any new or changed guidelines from NICE for the month of August, all of which are totally relevant for us in primary care and this is in conjunction with the NICE guideline monthly newsletter which is distributed to all North Norfolk clinicians and beyond. So what, is, what, what news have we got for this month in primary care for us? Well, there's a few important updates for us to discuss this month. Um, there's a new guideline for Titus Media with effusion in under 12s. Um, and that's a brand new guideline which was published on the 30th of August. And there's also a new guideline on quantitative faecal immunochemical testing or FIT testing as we know it to guide in colorectal cancer pathway referrals in primary care. And that's just been published on the 24th of August. Um, We also have updates on the guideline for suspected cancer recognition and referral and uh, also an update on the guideline for ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage diagnosis and initial management Um, and an update on the guideline for venous thromboembolic diseases diagnosis and management Um, and that was uh, originally published in 2020 but has been updated. Um, There's also some nice news and items of clinical interest to report on too. So lots to cover this month, Emma. Okay, good. Maybe we need to talk quicker. (laughs) (laughs) So shall we start off with the new NICE guidelines? Um, The first being really pertinent to us in primary care, otitis media with effusion. Um, This guideline covers identifying and managing otitis media with effusion or OME, also known as glue ear in children younger than 12 years. Otitis media with effusion is characterised by the presence of an effusion or fluid in the middle ear space without signs of acute inflammation or infection. OME is different from acute otitis media, which is classified as the presence of acute inflammation in the middle ear. So while AOM is associated with an effusion, it's accompanied by the rapid onset of symptoms and signs of an ear infection, um, such as a high temperature, lots of pain, So anything new, really. Um, We need to be aware that children with OME often present with hearing difficulties, delayed speech and language development, and ear discomfort, as opposed to pain, and tinnitus. Um, Behavioural problems, um, particularly lack of concentration or attention, being withdrawn, irritability, or poor educational process, or balance difficulties, for example, clumsiness, can also be a sign of OME. If OME is clinically suspected on the basis of the child's clinical history and assessment, the guideline recommends referral for, for a formal assessment. Um, so for children with OME found to be without hearing loss, um, they will be provided with just reassurance that it will often get better on its own over time and explain that there is no necessary treatment. Um, there is no OME decision table in the guideline which aids discussion of management options for children with confirmed OME and hearing loss. It covers both surgical and non-surgical options and the benefits, risks and practical considerations of each option. For example, monitoring support, auto-inflation, hearing aids and grommets or ventilation tubes. 
Um, there was lots of things on supported strategies, for example, um, modifying the environment and listening strategies as well. Okay. Um, what about medications and OMEM? So there's really clear guidance on medications for OME. Do not offer antibiotics to treat OME and do not offer oral or nasal corticosteroids, antihistamines, um, leukotriene receptor antagonists, mucolytics, proton pump inhibitors, anti-reflex medication or decongestants for OME or, um, or OME-related hearing loss. Okay, great. Well, that's really clear then. Thank you, Emma. Um, okay, now let's move on and have a look at um, the FIT testing to guide colorectal cancer pathway referral for us in primary care. This is a really useful guideline for FIT testing to guide us in when we suspect colorectal cancer and for referral. So as we know, FIT detects small amounts of blood and faeces, which is a sign of possible colorectal cancer. Evidence shows that offering the test in primary care can identify people who are more likely to have colorectal cancer, and these people can then be prioritised for referral to secondary care, while people who are less likely to have colorectal cancer can avoid unnecessary investigation. And that means that colonoscopy resources can be used for people who need them most. So the guideline recommends we, recommend, we refer for suspected colorectal cancer if the person has a fit result of at least 10 micrograms of haemoglobin per gram of faeces. We also though need to be mindful of people who have not returned a faecal sample or who have a fit result below 10 micrograms. Um, and the guideline recommends that you have a safety netting process in place to catch those people and also that referral to an appropriate secondary care pathway should not be delayed if there's a strong clinical concern. So, for example, if you find an abdominal mass. So FIT is recommended for people with an abdominal mass or a change in bowel habit or with iron deficiency anemia or in age 40 and over with unexplained weight loss and a bit of abdo pain, aged 50 or under with rectal bleeding and either of the following unexplained symptoms, abdominal pain, weight loss. Age 50 and over with rectal bleeding, abdominal pain, weight loss and over 60 with anemia, even in the absence of uh, iron deficiency. Okay, so what about the patient who's presented to you, with you who's recently had a negative FIT test through the NHS Bowel Cancer Screening Programme? Yeah, so the guidance recommends that we still FIT test. Um, they also recommend that only people with, uh, so, sorry, that people with a rectal mass or a, an unexplained anal ulceration don't offer FIT tests, just, just refer for those patients because they're higher risk. The guideline acknowledges that further research is still needed. Um, they want to determine the clinical impact of using thresholds of higher than 10 micrograms of haemoglobin per gram of faeces to guide the referral process. And they want to investigate fit in people aged under 40 and also evaluate methods for improving access and uptake and return of fit. So especially in groups which you know engagement is less likely and also to determine how conditions and medicines that increase the risk of GI bleeding affect the diagnostic accuracy of FIT. So I think this is research evidence that as it's gathered, updates will occur and we will keep you posted. Um, so in collaboration with this new guideline, NG12, Suspected Cancer Recognition and Referral, was first published in June 2015, but it's just been updated. Emma, can you just guide us through the change to that guidance? 
Yeah, sure. So this guidance has been updated in the recommend in line with the recommendations for the fit testing um, and referral for suspected uh, colorectal cancer. The tables of symptoms and primary care investigations have been updated to reflect these changes, and specific primary care investigations are highlighted within this guidance under the heading of recommendations organised by symptoms and findings of primary care investigations. This is a really thorough and really helpful table to link symptoms to possible cancers and recommendations to investigations and decision making on which referral type is required. It's well worth saving for the the future um, and to obviously refer to in general practice. Um, So let's now go on to the updated guideline on ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage diagnosis and the initial management. This guideline covers uh, diagnosing and managing ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage in women with complications such as pain, bleeding, uh, early pregnancy. So that's up to 13 weeks, um, completed weeks of pregnancy. It aims to improve how early pregnancy loss is diagnosed and the support women are given. Um, This will obviously help the limit limit the psychological impact of their loss. The main update relates to the medical management of miscarriage which would be performed generally in secondary care but however it's important for us in primary care to be aware of the recommendations for post medical management care and also just to engage with the with the um the person who's pregnant that you know what they can actually expect when they do reach secondary care for advice and 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 or treatment. Um, so it also covers advice um, for women and people with positive um, a positive urine pregnancy test after three weeks to return for review by a healthcare professional to rule out a retained pregnancy, a molar pregnancy or ectopic pregnancy and assesses the need for further investigation or treatment. If the pregnancy test after three weeks is negative um, but the woman is or person is still bleeding heavily or has other symptoms, for example, pelvic pain or fever, then obviously you need to assess for the need for further investigations or treatment in case of um, infection and so on. Okay, great. Thanks, Emma. Um, and finally, let's mention the updates to venous thromboembolic diseases, diagnosis management and thrombophilia testing. Um, so NICE have updated recommendations on the use of Wells score and D-dimer in the diagnostic pathways for PE and DVT. Uh, and that's following a review of the evidence for people with COVID-19. And they've also clarified the recommendations on the use of pulmonary embolism rule out criteria or PERC. Um, There's a really helpful visual summary for suspected DVT and PE to help guide our initial management dependent on the Wells score. So if there's clinical suspicion of PE and if it's low, then based on the overall clinical impression, um, you would use PERC to help determine whether there are any, excuse me, any further investigations for PE needed. So that calculates risk based on age, heart rate, oxygen sats on air, if there's unilateral leg swelling, hemoptysis, prior DVT or PE, or surgery or trauma in the last four weeks, or if the person's using hormones. And it can be used to escalate investigations if needed. The important thing to remember is that the PERC rule has not been validated in people with COVID-19. So caution with this cohort of people. Okay, Emma, that's really interesting. So both the visual summaries mentioned today are available via the link in the monthly newsletter, which has been distributed, or via the NICE website. And finally, finally, for this month, a couple (laughs) of items of clinical interest. Um, There's a new um, technology offering monitoring from home in virtual wards recommended for people with acute respiratory infection. 
Um, so technologies offering monitoring from home in virtual wards are recommended for people with acute infection, uh, respiratory um, infection. Um, these will provide feedback on um, vital signs to inform clinicians on patients' condition. Um, the platform should provide the patient's temperature, heart rate, oxygen sats, uh, blood pressure and respiratory rate. And the evidence has shown that virtual ward technologies are proving a cost-effective way to manage patients in tandem with the ARI uh, hubs or the acute respiratory infection hubs. Um, so there's four digital um, programmes uh, which can be used to help the NHS deliver specialist weight management services, um, obviously moving on from the respiratory virtual ward stuff. Um, and some of these programmes will include the ability to prescribe weight management medications such as semaglutide or um, lyroglutide to people who are eligible. The digital programmes will support these people who cannot or do not wish to travel for appointments and for those who are happy to be treated virtually. So either way, uh, it's, it's essentially taking patients away from having to uh, report to any primary or secondary care sort of facilities. Okay, I think that is really all we've got time for this month. It's been a long one. Thank you for listening. And please do take a look at the NNPC website on www.nnpc.info for further links to our previous podcasts and access to the monthly newsletter if you don't already receive it. So bye for now. We'll be back next month with more, more nice updates for you all. Bye.